Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. So it was the year 1507. Martin Luther was uh, recently ordained to the ministry. Of course, this would have been ordination in the Catholic Church, as that's the only church that existed at the time. And uh, Luther was getting ready to celebrate his very first Mass. So it would have been the beginning of Luther's public ministry. And this was a, a really big deal for Luther. Luther had, had conflict with his father because his father wanted him to be a lawyer, and Luther decided he wanted to be a priest, and his father didn't really approve of this, but dad kind of came along and, and began to accept um, what Luther had chosen to do. And so here's Luther, his first mass, his father is there, and his father has brought 20 friends with him. And they're all here to see... <clears throat> young Martin, institute his first Mass. Well, as Luther is standing there approaching the altar, he looks down on the floor and he sees a picture of Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. It's a depiction from the book of Revelation. And when he sees that, he just becomes overcome with fear. And he described it later as inner turmoil. And his legs began shaking. He became just overwhelmed with this sense of dread. He, he began to think to himself, who am I that I could lift my hands up to the divine majesty? He almost dropped the cup. And some reports say he tried to leave. He tried to run out of the church. He was so terrified and overwhelmed. And so here's Martin Luther, the beginning of his public ministry, and it's basically an embarrassment. <laughs> well, you know what? Jesus Christ also had a beginning to his ministry. Have you thought about that? Now, of course, we know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's divine and human. In terms of his divine nature, he had no beginning. He's the eternal God who has become man. But in his human nature, Jesus' ministry did have a beginning. He, he had to debut at some time. He had to come on the scene and begin his ministry. And uh, that happened, actually, not until he was about 30 years old. And so it's one of the maybe peculiar things about the Gospels is we don't really see hardly anything about Jesus' young life other than his birth, which Matthew and Luke tell us about, but Mark don't, doesn't. And so here in the book of Mark, we are getting right into it. I told you last week that Mark likes to move quickly. And so he doesn't give us a birth narrative. He moves directly to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and that's what we are going to consider here uh, this morning. And the reason this is so important is because here in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see Him laying down some very important priorities. It's here in the beginning of His ministry that He sets the course for everything that's going to come later. And as we continue through the book of Mark, we're going to see these themes that I'm going to tell you about today come up repeatedly as we work our way through this book. So, we are beginning, or began, I should say, last Sunday, a new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. We're just working our way through Mark, one passage at a time. And last week, we saw the presence of John the Baptist, who came as kind of a forerunner in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to introduce Jesus to us. So, we just got a, a very broad introduction 
And here this morning, Jesus debuts. It's kind of his rookie season, so to speak. He is on the scene. The public ministry is beginning, and that's what we're going to read about now. So if you're able to stand, please do that. I'm going to read Mark 1, starting in verse 12, and uh, move through to verse 20. Mark 1, 12 to 20. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Holy Spirit, would you please open our hearts and our minds to behold wonderful things in your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, So this uh, passage that I've chosen here divides up very nicely into three little sections, and so there are uh, three things that are happening here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that, again, are going to show us what for Jesus were priorities. And if they were priorities for him, they ought to be priorities for us. And so the first thing that we're going to see here is that Jesus begins by preaching the kingdom. He begins by proclaiming, talking about this thing called the kingdom of God. So we're going to begin in verse 14 this morning. Uh, Notice that it says, after John was arrested. So that might sound kind of surprising. We heard about John last week. We're finding out now he's in jail. Uh, But Mark, again, he wants to move ahead. He doesn't give us really any details. We will hear more about this later in Mark. But for right now, uh, Mark just mentions this as kind of a a placeholder, a time uh, point, and uh, says that at this time or after that time, Jesus came into Galilee and he comes proclaiming, he comes preaching. So the verses immediately prior to this, the, the temptation in the wilderness, we'll get to that in a moment, but that temptation in the wilderness it was a private event between Jesus and, and Satan, not really part of his public ministry. So what we're reading about here is the beginning of his public ministry. The very first thing that Jesus does is not healing or doing any kind of a miracle. The first thing he does is he comes preaching. He, he comes giving a message proclaiming, it says, the gospel of God at the end of verse uh, 14. But notice, as he proclaims the gospel, what is it that he talks about? He says, the time is fulfilled, the appropriate time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, we have here this kind of linking between the gospel and the kingdom. It's like the gospel and the kingdom go together. The kingdom of God is something that is so absolutely central to the gospel, and yet it is so little understood. 
I mean, the gospel is, or excuse me, the kingdom is everywhere in the gospel. Mark is going to mention it 18 times. If we go to Matthew and Luke, uh, Matthew mentions the kingdom 53 times. Luke mentions the kingdom 44 times. So this is something that we have to pay attention to. Obviously, this was a priority for Jesus. He's starting his ministry, and he begins talking about the kingdom. Here's why this is important. I think a very common view for many Christians is this. As we think about the gospel, generally we think of it this way. It's, it's that you individually, you as an individual need to believe in Jesus. And when you as an individual put your faith in Jesus, your individual sins will be forgiven, and then you personally, singularly, you as an individual will then go and live with Jesus forever. And certainly, everything that I've said is true. All of that is true, but the gospel is more than that. It's not just about you and me individually. It is about a kingdom. When you become a Christian, you belong to a kingdom. And Paul says this very clearly here in Colossians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you are a Christian, you are the citizen of a kingdom and Jesus is your king. Jesus is your Savior, yes, we rejoice in that, but there is no such thing as a Christian who has Jesus as Savior and not as King. It's more than just your individual relationship with Jesus. It's broader than that, it's bigger than that. You might say, well, what do you mean by kingdom? Well, I mean, just very simply, what, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is a, a sphere, an area, um, a realm, a place that is ruled by a king. I mean, it's really nothing more than that. It, it's a province, a, a place where we exist, where we have come under the rule of a king. And when you become a Christian, you have come under the rule of King Jesus. This is a kingdom that has no uh, earthly boundaries like the United States and other earthly nations do. This is a very different kind of kingdom. But here's why this is so important and why this speaks to the needs and longings that we all have, friends, because when you look out at the world and when your heart breaks, every time you hear something that's happened in the world that is just horrifying, like that shooting in Buffalo last week, motivated by racism, where the guy goes in and kills 10 people, or every time you hear an update on the war in Ukraine and you hear about the atrocities that the Russians are committing in that nation, and every time you hear about the fact that we can't even get enough baby formula on the shelves to take care of our children, and every time you hear about all the complications and tensions and controversies that surround issues like abortion and immigration, and you just look out at the world and you thought it was getting better and now it seems like it's getting worse and everything's falling apart and your heart is longing for something better, what your heart wants is a kingdom of righteousness and peace and love, and holiness, and justice. That's what you want. That's what I want. That's what everyone wants. That's what our hearts are telling us when we see the world as broken and dysfunctional as it is. And so when Jesus says here, the 
time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What he's saying is the perfect, righteous, holy, peaceful kingdom that you're all longing for is here, and the reason why it's here is because I'm here. Jesus the King has arrived, and now he is in the process of bringing and ushering in this kingdom. If you look at verse 15 again, it says the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? It's, it's at hand. It's a kind of a peculiar phrase, but what it seems to mean is that the, the kingdom is, is, is here, but it's not fully here. It, it's nearby, it's coming, but it's not all the way arrived. And so as we look at the rest of Scripture, what we're, we'll see is that the kingdom kind of unfolds in stages. But it begins, first of all, with the coming of Jesus Christ as this holy, righteous king. And here is what makes this kingdom so unlike any other kingdom in this world. I mean, every nation is kind of a kingdom, so to speak. I mean, in Britain, Great Britain, they still call themselves United Kingdom, right? I mean, anytime you have someone in charge and people underneath, it's kind of a kingdom. But all kingdoms are loaded with their dysfunction and their injustices and their inability to care well for people. But here's what's different about the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, is that we worship what is called a servant king. I mean, this is an absolutely radical notion. This is the title of this whole sermon series. He is a servant king. He is king in that he comes with all power and all majesty, and all splendor, and all sovereignty as the eternal God, and yet he comes into this world in the form of a man to serve. He comes in humility. He comes not primarily to just sit on his throne and have people grovel before him. No, he comes to serve people. There is no king like this, friends. There's no king who has ever existed quite like this. And in fact, later in Mark 10, Here's what Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's what kings typically do throughout history. When they're threatened by their enemies, they kill them. What kings normally do, they do battle with their enemies. They fight their enemies. They resent their enemies. They extinguish their enemies. This king that we're talking about in Jesus Christ is a king who comes and dies for his enemies, lays down his life to save them. That's the ultimate way that he serves. He's still a king. He's still sovereign. He's still almighty, but he comes as a servant king. And so this is the kingdom, this beginning. This is what Jesus is saying. The, the kingdom's at hand. I'm here. This kingdom is beginning it's going to unfold. It's going to take time to unfold, but here I am. So you might be thinking, all right, that sounds like a pretty good kingdom. How do I take my place in that kingdom? How do I become a citizen in that kingdom? And Jesus tells us very clearly at the end of verse 15, kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. That's how you become a part of this kingdom. You repent and you believe. You don't have to take some citizenship exam. You don't have to get a green card. You don't have to go through, jumping through all the loops that lots of nations require in order for you to be a citizen of their nation, to be a citizen of this kingdom. Here's what's required. Repentance and belief. What is repentance? What is repentance? Very simple. Repentance is taking a U-turn in your life. 
Repentance is you're going one way in your life and you decide to go the other way. It's a reorienting of the way you look at life. I was going this way, now I'm going to go that way. That's repentance. And this is what Jesus is calling for. John the Baptist called for it as well, right? Repent. I know all the fire and brimstone preachers talk about repentance and it's not a popular thing to talk about and people feel like it's being so judgmental, but it's all over the scriptures. John says it, Jesus says it, and it's true. You need to repent. You need to repent. What does that look like? Let's say, for instance, you, you, you think that your life is really just about making yourself happy and living for your own purposes and your own, your own glory. To repent of that is to realize, no, I am here for God's glory. I'm not here primarily for me. I'm here for him. The world doesn't revolve around me. The world revolves around him. And my life needs to reflect that. So you repent and you change your way of looking at that. Maybe you're a person who has been hurt deeply by somebody and you have said many times, I will never forgive him for that. What is it to repent of that? It's for you to realize that now you have to forgive him for that because you have been forgiven by a God who has laid down his life for you. Holding grudges and resentment against others is not an option. You repent of that. You turn away from it. You say, I used to think that, but I don't anymore. I used to act that way, but not anymore. Maybe in the area of sexuality, you just think to yourself, I think sex is just a gift for me to get my own fulfillment and to just engage in whenever I want because it's part of being happy. And then you realize the scripture gives direction about how sex should be conducted. Boundaries, limitations, and promises about how sex can be fulfilling when it's done God's way. And so you repent and you say, I used to think that way about that, and I used to even engage in those things, but not anymore. I live in a new kingdom. I'm a citizen under King Jesus. And so I've got to live differently. It doesn't mean that you just, you know, necessarily get this down perfectly when you repent. This is uh, an ongoing effort, but this is what it is to belong to the kingdom, repentance. But it's not just repentance, friends, it's, it's belief, right? Repent and believe. <laughs> believe in the gospel. Believe that a Savior has come to pay the penalty for your sins, to give his life as a ransom for you. Believe that. Put your faith in him. Stop trusting in all of your own efforts to earn God's approval. Believe. It's both. It's repent and believe. If you repent and don't believe, you know what that is? That's just people trying to save themselves by their own moral effort. Repent without belief? No, no. Belief without repentance, that's just simply taking the grace of the gospel and completely dismissing the whole rest of Scripture that tells you how to be obedient and pursue holiness. That's not an option either. You don't just repent, you don't just believe, you repent and believe, and you become a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, here, this is where it begins. See, th these are you know, personal things that Jesus is saying here about repentance and belief. But what happens when a person repents in belief is the kingdom of God begins to take root in a person's heart. That, that's kind of where the kingdom starts. It's, you're, you're changed, you're born again. You're, you see everything differently now. You've got new eyes and got a new heart, and now you want to live for Jesus. And so th there's this change that takes place in you, and then you enter into the life of the church. And so I want to take a moment here to 
explain this. I think it's important. It might seem a little abstract, but I think it's important that you all understand the difference between the church and the kingdom. There's, There's a difference between the two. The church and the kingdom are not the same thing. So, um, if we look at this chart here, this is the way m- many people will look at these two things. Many people think the church and the kingdom are one and the same, no difference, and that the secular world, that is the world of politics and nine-to-five work and science and entertainment, that's the secular world, and that's like a whole different world, church and kingdom on the one side, secular on the other side, and there's no mingling between the two. Like we come, we do the church thing on Sunday morning, but then Monday through Saturday we're in the world and there's like no connection between the two. I mean, so many Christians live that way. You know, Sunday morning Christians. That, that, that's, that's an error. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches about the church and the kingdom. There's a difference between the church and the kingdom. And I think a better diagram to explain this is like this. You repent, you believe, you become a Christian, you take your part in the church... The church is the headquarters of the kingdom. What we're doing here in the church is training you how to be citizens of the kingdom. That's our job. Proclaim the gospel, make disciples so that you can live as a citizen of the kingdom. But the kingdom, you see, is broader than the church. The kingdom goes out from the church. So when you're trained as a disciple, this is the work we do with our equipped groups on Sunday mornings and Bible studies, we're training you to be a kingdom citizen so that then you move out as the kingdom expands into the world to be salt and light, as Jesus commands us to do. I, uh, if you've ever been to the Blaylock's house, uh, Joe and, and Lisa Blaylock, I, I sought permission from this from, from Joe, but when you get to their front door of their house, they have a sign that says this, Embassy of the Kingdom of Heaven. That's, that's their home. Their home is not the church. Their home is an embassy of the kingdom. That's the way all of you should look at your home. Your houses are embassy of the king, embassies of the kingdom. You are displaying the values and the priorities of the kingdom wherever you are. Your homes are embassies of the kingdom. You individually are ambassadors of the kingdom. And so when you're out on the soccer field and when you're in the classroom, and when you're at the office, and when you're on social media, and when you're out in the neighborhood talking to your neighbors, never forget you're an ambassador of the kingdom. You're trying to show people what it's like to live as a citizen of this kingdom under the rule of this servant king. And this is a a lifelong process, and we we just keep doing this until Jesus comes again. But here's the promise from Revelation 11. Here's what's eventually going to happen. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Christ are going to merge, and the kingdom of Christ is going to cover the world as the waters cover the sea. And that day is coming. Until then, We do our work in the church, we train citizens, we become kingdom representatives, and we take that into the world. So this is obviously a priority for Jesus. Starting off in his public ministry, talking about the kingdom, we'll talk more about the kingdom as we go through the book of Mark. But let's look at the second thing that Jesus does. He calls his disciples. Kind of an entirely different kind of thing here, but 
Um, apparently, Jesus is not going to do the kingdom work by himself, so he calls disciples to himself. So you might say, well, what is a disciple? Uh, a disciple is basically a learner, just a, a learner, a, a follower. Let me make this clear. A disciple is a Christian. A Christian is a disciple. There's no such thing as a disciple who's not a Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not a disciple. If being a disciple sounds like, oh, that's, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I don't think I want to really be a disciple. No, there's no real option there. <laughs> not all disciples are apostles. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But all disciples are Christians. All Christians are disciples. And so here we see the very first disciples who are called in verses 16 through 20. And uh, it begins here with Jesus just calling four disciples. You know, there's 12. He'll call the other eight later. Here's just the first four. And there are two sets of brothers. Simon and Andrew are brothers. James and John are brothers. So these four men are called by Jesus. But look here at verse 16. It says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. So uh, Jesus sees Simon here. <clears throat> now, Simon actually is better known by another name. Simon is known as Peter. Later on, Jesus is going to change Simon's name to Peter. So it maybe sounds a little confusing, but um, we will come to know Simon as Peter. So Jesus here is calling Peter as a disciple. And um, we're going to find in Mark that, that Mark is going to refer a lot to Peter. Uh, he's like a prominent disciple in what <coughs> Mark says. Now, here's a reason why this is important, and I want you to see this because I think it's important for how we read this gospel. Um, you know, maybe this question has come up in your mind, but do you remember or do you realize that, that Mark is actually not an apostle? You know, M Mark was not a guy who was hanging around Jesus, right? Like Matthew, like John, like Peter. They were with Jesus throughout all of his teaching and his miracles, and up to the very end, those guys were with Jesus, but not Mark. Mark was not a companion of Jesus. So we might ask, how is it that Mark knew all these things to write down in this gospel? And the reason why we can trust what Mark has written is because although Mark was not a companion of Jesus, he was a companion of Peter. He was a close companion, close friend of Peter. And we see this hinted at in 1 Peter chapter 5 where Peter says, okay, again, this is Simon, Simon Peter, she who is at Babylon, I think referring to the church, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Peter says. That's referring to the Mark who wrote this gospel. But Peter refers to him as my son. It's a very endearing reference. Some commentators think the reason why Peter calls Mark his son is because Mark perhaps came to faith under Peter's influence. And because Peter perhaps mentored or discipled Mark. And that that's how Mark then got the information that he had to write down what we hear about here in this gospel. This is confirmed by a, uh, <coughs> uh, an early bishop named Papias or Papias. He writ, wrote in uh, the, like the second century, and this is what's written about him. <clears throat> it says, the presbyter used to say this, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered for he had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him. He was not a companion of Jesus, like I was just saying. 
But later on, as I said, he followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded. So you can imagine, Mark's hanging out with Peter, Peter's preaching, Peter's teaching, and Mark kind of goes to him afterward, and he said, tell me again, who, who was it who was there at the transfiguration? Elijah and, and who? Moses. Okay, got it. Um, now, what did you say in that parable? You know, what did you hear Jesus say uh, about that parable? Can, can you help me with those details? Mark was hanging out with Peter and getting all this information, getting his notes right so that he could write a gospel that is reliable. So I just want to point that out to you in case you have that question. How could Mark know what to write if he wasn't a companion of Jesus? It's because he was a companion of Peter. So that's the first disciple that we see who is called. But what about the rest of these disciples? What, what can we take uh, from this in verses 16 to 20? First of all, let's look at how they're called. Notice that these disciples are called by Jesus' initiative. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me, follow me. Jesus is the one taking initiative. Here's why that's a little bit unusual, because in this time, rabbis would not pursue students. Students pursued rabbis. The, the, the rabbis waited to be pursued. And so what Jesus is doing here would have been regarded as kind of, kind of strange, kind of unusual. It's Jesus taking the initiative. He does the same thing in verse 20 with James and John. He called them. I mean, he knows them by name, too. And he comes and he initiates this contact. Friends, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you have to know it's not because you went out and sought Jesus. It's because Jesus has sought you. Anybody can become a Christian, but in order for you to be a Christian, you, you have to be called. You have to respond to Jesus initiating a relationship with you. You have to sense that he's calling you, and, and maybe he's calling you right now. Do you sense that? Jesus calling you? This is where it begins. It's not your attempt to figure everything out and get the answer to life. That's not really where it starts. It's not your initiative. It's Jesus' initi initiative. That's, that's how he calls these disciples. But then notice also who Jesus calls. Notice that the people he calls here are what we would say very insignificant, common ordinary people, fishermen. Je Jesus didn't go out and call the philosophers and the emperors. He didn't go to Rome or to Corinth. I mean, eventually he gets to Corinth. Now, Jesus doesn't, but uh, they go to Rome and Corinth. He, he doesn't choose to go to these big metropolitan areas where all of the important people are. No, he goes to this region of Galilee, this backwater place that's very easily overlooked. I don't know, maybe a place a little bit like Delaware County, Galilee. That, that's where Jesus goes. He goes to backwater places, and he chooses common, ordinary people. You know, friends, if you've ever thought to yourself, I just don't have much to offer. I am just not that smart. I'm just not that gifted. I just have this regular job. I just stay at home and raise kids. I, what can I do? You're exactly the kind of person that Jesus can use. He chooses the ordinary, common people, which is exactly what Paul says here, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
So that's who Jesus called. And then lastly, why? Why did Jesus call these disciples? Well, one answer is very easy. It's to follow him. He says, follow me. And in verse 18, we notice how uh, at least Simon and Aunt Andrew respond. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. It's just a remarkable thing. What was it about the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus and the presence of Jesus that made them drop their nets without hesitation and follow him? It's just like they just must have thought that there is something going on here. I've never met anybody like this in my life. I, I'm not even going to give this a second thought. Followed him immediately. And so, friends, if you're hearing this call of Jesus, maybe even this morning, maybe even as you hear this sermon, why are you hesitating? What are you waiting for? You don't need to give this a second thought. You need to follow Jesus. He called Simon and Andrew, and he calls you now to follow him and give your life to him. But Jesus didn't just call them to follow him. Notice at the end of verse 17, he says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So here's why Jesus calls us to be disciples, not only to follow him and to know him, but also so that through you and me, he might call others to be disciples. This is a call to evangelism, friends. Jesus is saying, there's a whole lot more people out there who need to be disciples, and I'm not going to be the one who calls them all. You're going to call them too. You're going to be fishers of men. You're going to open your mouth and you're going to say the kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus is here, repent and believe. As God allows, as God directs, that's the responsibility of all disciples of Jesus. So, that's the second thing we see here. Uh, Jesus' priority, the kingdom. Jesus' other priority here is gathering disciples who will gather fishers of men. And then the last thing to consider is this battle with Satan. Jesus battles Satan. So we're going backwards here, okay, back to verses 12 to 14. Um, and um, uh, again, this is before his public ministry, but there's something very important that happens here as Jesus gets ready for his public ministry. We see here that the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And he, in the wilderness, engages in this monumental cosmic spiritual battle. I mean, talk about a heavyweight bout. This is Jesus versus Satan in the wilderness. And this is the most important battle that's ever been waged by two enemies. Uh, we see here that it lasted 40 days, probably recalling the 40 years in the wilderness of Israel after the exodus. There's wild animals present here, probably just a sign of the hostile nature of this place where Jesus was. Um, we see here that Mark is very brief in what he tells us about this. If you know about Matthew chapter 4, Matthew gives us a lot of details, explains to us the way Satan approached Jesus. Mark doesn't give us those details. We could take time and look at the Matthew passage, but, but let me just summarize very quickly. In the Matthew passage, what happens is that Satan comes and he presents to Jesus a temptation, and in each temptation, Jesus responds with Scripture. Satan says one thing, Jesus says, yeah, but the Word of God says this. And so Jesus engages in this kind of debate 
uh, with Satan, and then at the very end, Jesus just says, be gone, Satan. And it says Satan left him. And so we know who won that battle. Jesus won that battle. Satan is no match for Jesus. And then, of course, Jesus is going to finish that job when he dies on the cross and raises from the dead. But here we have Jesus overcoming the devil in triumph. Friends, the most encouraging thing that perhaps you can know is that the forces of good are greater than the forces of evil in this world. Jesus is greater than Satan. The one who lives in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Um, to refer to Martin Luther, again, Luther was once asked, how do you deal with demonic, satanic temptation? And Luther said, well, here's what I do. He says, when Satan knocks at the door of my heart, Jesus answers the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but now I do. <laughs> Be gone, Satan. And so there is power over the devil in Jesus Christ. And so we see that in this temptation uh, that Jesus experiences. But friends, there is something greater going on here. There's something more significant happening here. Uh, the title of this sermon is In the Beginning, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But let's go back to the beginning in Genesis. In the beginning, do you remember? God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in a garden. And in that beginning, very soon after they're in the garden, who shows up? Satan. The same Satan that tempted Jesus in the wilderness showed up and tempted Adam and said to Adam, Adam, don't listen to God. Don't listen to his word. You can't really know what he means. If you would just eat this fruit of this tree, oh, so many good things are going to happen for you, Adam. Just go eat that tree. It's not that big of a deal. And Adam does it. He rebels against God. He eats of that fruit, the worst decision ever made in the history of the world. And sin enters into the world and enters into the heart of every single human being. That was a test. And Adam failed it. And now Jesus comes onto the scene. And it's time for a new beginning. And Jesus faces a similar temptation. And Satan comes and offers his own temptations to Jesus. But in Jesus' case, the results are very different. Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. Where Adam lost, Jesus triumphed. Where Adam made a mistake, Jesus did it right. Where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. That's the important reason that this is here for us. So we can see that Jesus did what Adam failed to do. And now we have a representative for us that is better than Adam, the second Adam. The Lord Jesus who obeyed and submitted to the Father did everything exactly right, no blemish found in him, no deceit found on his lips. And so as we like to say sometimes here at um, New Life, you know what? You actually are saved by good works. It's just not your good works. But it is the good works that someone else had to do on your behalf. You are saved by obedience, just not your obedience. You're saved by Jesus' obedience. You're saved by his death on the cross and his resurrection, yes, but you're saved by his life. You're saved by his obedience. He's obeying here on your behalf. He's doing it right for every time you've done it wrong. He tells the truth for every time you have been deceitful. He's moral for every time you've been immoral. 
He loves the Father for every time you failed to love the Father. He submitted to the Father for every time you refused to submit to the Father. Where you've done it wrong, He's done it right, and that's why He's a suitable Savior for us. And so Romans 5 tells us this, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that's you and me, that's for anyone who will trust in King Jesus. So, <clears throat> the ministry of Jesus has a very strong start, friends, uh, but the good news is that it ended well also, because He went the whole way, submitting to the Father in everything, going to the cross, giving up His life, being raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet and until the kingdom comes and covers the earth as the water covers the sea. Jesus, come quickly. God, thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you, Lord, for your kingdom. What a privilege and honor it is to be called citizens of that kingdom. Thank you for calling us to be disciples. You haven't called everybody, but you called us. We thank you for that privilege, and thank you, Lord, for defeating our worst enemy, Satan himself. Help us, Lord, to live as ambassadors for your kingdom wherever we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.